With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. A very special episode coming up. I talk with my friends who have the podcast. This podcast is making me thirsty, which is all about Seinfeld, of all things. So they had me on their podcast, and I asked if I could use the recording on this podcast, and they said yes. We talk about... Everything relating to the Seinfeld show from Larry David's management techniques to the common thread through all of Seinfeld's career, except for maybe trashing me in the New York Times, and many other things about the show, about Seinfeld's style of comedy, about Larry David, the cast or the writers who have been on my podcast. Again, this was such a fun time. I was on the podcast. This podcast is making me thirsty. Go ahead and listen to the rest of their episodes, and now... Here's the episode I did with them. Hey, it's actually happening. Wow. I'm excited to be here. My first Seinfeldian podcast. Uh, <laughs> we are All right. absolutely thrilled to have you. Uh, I can't thank you enough. This is incredible. Let me ask you guys, yeah. when, and I know we're recording, so it's okay. So when was the first time you became aware that Seinfeld, the show, was a big, huge deal for you personally? Well, very very good question. Go ahead, O'Hara, you take it first. <laughs> that was a question we were going to ask you. So, <laughs> James, we're 42, so 10 years younger than you. I would say 1990, 91, my brother introduced it to me when Seinfeld was on Wednesday nights. And he's a little older, so he kind of got into, he, you know, he saw Seinfeld on Letterman, et cetera. So I think that's, he dipped his toes in there. But I'd say 90, 90 91. And we were and like we 12 were, years old. Yeah, 12 years old. We were best friends then, even before that, actually, and still are. And he told me, my brother told me about this show. You should watch it. I watched it. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. Season two is when I really was like, whoa, this, this show is, this is different. Because I was a real TV watcher. A lot of the phony kind of cheesy sitcoms. And then this one came along. And I'm like, this is nothing like all those other shows. This is incredible. And then we just dialed in. And uh, we talk about how in 10th grade uh, biology, we used to talk that the first 20 minutes of our 10th grade biology class was just Seinfeld all the time. So, Man, uh, you, you, you're lucky you grew up when you did because you had the, you know, like I was raised on basically the real, I feel like the 80s was the worst decade for television. The 70s was phenomenal, by the way. And then the 90s is could be all defined by Seinfeld and maybe the Larry Sanders show on HBO. Like HBO was was starting to blossom in the mid to late 90s. And then I feel, to, to, you know, it's almost a, worthy of a whole other thing. But to, 2004 to 2015 was like a golden age of where, where uh, series had arcs in them seasons, an entire season would be a story. It would be in the arc of the season, which back in the Seinfeld times, I think Seinfeld was the, the best and changed television, like you guys said, and there's so many ways in which they were a leader in, in the genre. 
And then the next kind of generation after that was really tying together every episode of a season so that the, the episodes themselves had, had meaning within the season. Yeah. And it, Seinfeld did that in one season when they had the pilot in season four. But just back to when you got into it. So you're, you were yeah, about- you're right. That was yeah, the that was most brilliant yeah, was season well, ever. Like, yeah, like I, I, I remember watching that with my friends and I couldn't believe what I was watching. Like that was the first Show meta the moment in television and, and I was watching it. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, the show. All right, so Jan, the show. You, when, when did you become the fan? Tell us. So you were like 21, I'd say, when it launched in 89. Yeah, so I would say it was a it was a couple years later. I didn't I wasn't aware of Seinfeld the comedian at that time. Uh, although I had been following comedians like it's almost weird to say this now, but I had seen like uh <laughs> Bill Cosby live at Radio City Music Hall. I would go to George whenever it was somebody big like George Carlin, Bill Cosby, whenever they were in, I'd go I'd make it a point to to see them. Um, but I wasn't really aware of Seinfeld, the comedian until Seinfeld, the show. And I remember this friend of my, my closest friend at the time was like, you have to watch this show. There's this guy on there who's like obsessed with jackets and he always wants like a new jacket. And he's really, he runs into the, his neighbor's apartment and it's, they're all friends, and, but they all like have this weird relationship with each other. And there's this really beautiful woman. I know your taste. You're going to really like uh, this woman, Elaine, and you know, the main character is really funny. And I'm like, it sounds a bit weird, but all right, I'll watch it. And then after that, it was game over. I was obsessed forever. Were you, are you originally from New York? Cause the show is always the two New York or whatever. I know you're there now. I, I, I did you grow up there or no in New York? City? I, I was born in New York. Uh, you have and- it in your blood. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, my my I'm fourth generation born in New York, and I I grew up living around like I grew up in New New Jersey mostly, okay. but I lived for some years in in New York, but then I grew up in New Jersey. But my my all my family was in the city, so I was every weekend we'd go into Manhattan and spend the weekend or hang out or, or you know then during during the week I'd skip school, go into the city, and then when I was an adult and finished school, my first adult job was in New York City, and I've been there ever since. Yeah, James, I'm a Jersey guy now, too. So Jersey, New York. They mentioned the Palisades in the show, so you're good. Yeah. I've, 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 I can't drive anymore because I got caught speeding on the Palisades. It's another story. <laughs> <laughs> so you are a fan of the show. That was kind of our first question because this show is dedicated to Seinfeld, obviously. But then, you know, your tie-in from, you know, Cohen and the Comedy Club and uh, you know, we'll, we'll get into the newspaper articles that went back yeah. and forth. We don't need to, if you, if you want to, we can, but we were going to try and stick to the show more, but uh, it sounds like you are a fan, which is awesome. I wasn't even sure. I know you're reading his book right now. You mentioned anything from yeah. the book that sticks out. Yeah. Yeah. And it's actually related to, I've been thinking a lot about this. Like it's related to the show. It's related to the documentary comedian. It's related to the special I'm telling you for the last time. And it's also related to comedians and cars getting coffee. There's this thread that goes through all of these, let's call them the most creative projects of his life, which is that he doesn't just love being a good comedian. He loves being a good, I don't want to say analyst. It sounds too technical. He he's love. He, he loves comedy so much that he really wants to talk about and explain and perform the dynamics of creating good comedy. So what is the TV show Seinfeld about? It's about a comedian and how he comes up with 
his observations about mundane everyday things. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a comedy about comedy. <laughs> so that's, and it was the first one really like that. And, you know, now that's become a genre. And then there's other things he's done, you know, that, that made Seinfeld great, but let's just stick with this one thread. Then of course the documentary comedian is when after he stops the sh TV show and he wants to get back into comedy and it kind of documents the process of how do you become a comedian again? And he goes to all the clubs and you see him hanging out with Chris Rock, Colin Quinn, that other guy, I forget his name, that everybody forgets his, that guy's name, but he's, he's not so bad. And, uh, uh, but he's again, documenting the process of how does a comedian do this? Even if they're world famous, cause it, it doesn't change. And then comedians and cars getting coffee. It's all about how other people do it. And, you know, I'm telling you for the last time, this is a special that he did. Yep. It's all about him burying his old material and coming up with new material, which kind of enlightens the casual listener into this whole world of the constant comedic debate. Do you write new material? Do you use your old material and master it? Like this is a constant back and forth for a comedian. And finally, this book, we assume he's telling the truth that, that he's documenting every joke, but you see every joke he's worked on since the 1970s. And you know, the, some people in the reviews are disappointed because it's not as autobiographical as they thought, but this is an outline of genius, this book. It's how he developed as a comedian. You could see how his voice developed, how his writing developed, in the different directions it developed, how he repurposed content for episodes of the show or his children's book about Halloween was originally a joke. I realized that now reading the book. And uh, and then also if you, I've seen him live, you know, lately, like in the past year, and you see how he's gotten, some of these jokes are intended to be more physical humor than, you know, his his old style was, and it's not that he, these are subtle differences in style, but his old style was, you know, what's the deal with blah, blah, blah. But now, <laughs> but now his new style is a little bit more almost smart, like where he's not questioning what's the deal with. He's sort he's sort of saying like, you know, um, uh, you know, you know, when if you're passing a billboard with uh, the no drinking sign, is this really where you want to put that billboard? Like he's, he's, he's smarter now. He's a little bit more, not quite arrogant with the audience, but a little bit more from a point of wisdom and knowledge and kind of making fun of things as opposed to making fun of things from the point of view of a questioner, a, a young, curious questioner. So, and he's, his humor now is much more physical. So it's interesting to read the book, knowing, knowing those things about his live performances. Anyway, that was yeah. a long answer. No, that yeah. was really insightful. And I actually agree with a lot of what you said. It was and and it, it's, it's fascinating that there's this one thread, and I didn't think about it until after I finished reading the book. There's this one thread through, through all those things. Uh, you know, did I mention with comedians in cars how it's about how other comedians right. get their material? And it's all because of his love for comedy, not just his love for his own performance and his skills and his success, but love for all of comedy. And James, he got a little lucky, let's be honest, right? I mean, he came around at the right time because you. I, I, I watch a podcast, you talk about offensive comedy, right? Like today, would Seinfeld work, right? With Jerry drugging his girlfriend to play toys, the homophobic stuff, the cleavage with the 15-year-old, the Chinese woman, I can go on and on, right? Like they gave him a shot. And now to your point, he's thought of as, as a genius, somewhat like a a sports star that's just put in the right situation, right? Like a Derek Jeter just happened to flourish with the Yankees. I'm just curious, like, do you think this show would have been 
could be made today. Um, is it a generational thing? Is it just a 42 to 52 year old that that's really leaned in or when this gets put on Netflix next year, will we see a, a whole new, a whole new love for it from the younger generation? Yeah, that's an interesting question. You're right. So it's coming on Netflix soon. And I'll tell you, like when friends came on Netflix, my kids, I have five kids, ages 18 to 21, all of them, no matter where they were in the world, when they were at different spots in the world, they all loved friends. And you know what? You know what the two most popular shows on Netflix was? Uh, and I'm going to say one year ago or two years ago, it was the two most popular shows were Friends and The Office, not Stranger Things, not House of Cards. It was like these classic 90s and 00s sitcoms, Friends from 90s, The Office basically from the 00s. And uh, will Seinfeld have the same effect? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think the humor is better than Friends, but I think people will want to see themselves in the Friends characters a little bit more. But, it, you know, it's it's hard to say. That said, there's a lot of things in the question, right? So technically, the way television networks work now, if you just have a couple of bad episodes on broadcast TV, your show is going to be canceled. So in that sense, you know, Seinfeld didn't really find its voice until the second season. You know, the first season was a completely, I don't want to say completely different show, but it was a different show. It was, it was really finding its voice. So let's just assume that they would have, they had a two or three season order. So you couldn't have knocked them off in the second or even the third season. Would it then have succeeded? Would it then succeed if it happens now? I think it would because there's other innovations in Seinfeld other than the comedy, but the comedy itself is still relatable. You know, that's why I, I was noticing in the book, some of the jokes from the seventies, he still uses in his live performance yeah. and people still laugh, not realizing their jokes from the seventies. So, <laughs> The humor is relatable because, you know, every comedian has got their their special mutant power. So John Stewart has this uncanny ability to look at the news and find out what's really unusual in today's news. Louis C.K. has this very unique mutant power to look at high stakes events, like whether it's having children or issues like abortion and climate change or, or other things. And, and finding the unusual in them, the, the Bible, he'll find the unusual in them. And, and Seinfeld, his mutant power is looking at boarding a plane and finding the unusual in it, or, you know, sharpening a pencil and finding the unusual in it, or, or go trick or treating and finding the unusual in it. So he's, he's, a, he's the master at, at looking at the mundane and finding what's unusual and turning that into humor. And, and his jokes are perfectly crafted with, you know, set up punchline, a little bit of acting out, a little bit of a voice, uh, uh, some physical humor, maybe a tiny bit of absurdity. And he's also a master of wordplay. So if a word has like three different meanings, you could be sure he is going to use every one of those meanings in a joke. You know, I think his humor is still relevant and, and relatable. It's not as risque, but it never was. And there was always risque humor back then in the 80s. I mean, this is after after Richard Pryor and George Carlin. So and, and it's around the time of like Bill Hicks and and other guys. I, I think his, his humor always has a role. And you see comedians now who who have Seinfeldian type of humor, like, you know, Mark Norman's a great joke writer. Gary Goldman's a great joke writer. You know, Gary Goldman deals with the bigger issues of depression. But before this most recent special, The Great Depression, he is, is a lot more about, you know, um, how did the states get their abbreviations or here's the hierarchy of cookies. So I had a little bit more of a Seinfeld flavor as well as like really well written the way the way Seinfeld does. 
Yeah, we're trying to get Mark Norman Don, by the way. So maybe you could put in a good word for us. I've been reaching out to him. Um, I don't know if he'll take a good word from me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Uh, I know you mentioned, uh, you were talking about Jerry and how he, you know, likes, especially with community cars, getting coffee about the kind of how they get a joke and break it down and how he's very analytical. I, I'm getting that from you as well, just from watching your, your Amazon show and just knowing your background. I mean, you're a coder, you do chess. I mean, and now you're doing stand-up comedy. I, do you approach stand-up comedy the way you approach those other things like computer programming and chess? Is it analytical for you as far as breaking a joke down and structuring it? Or are you just, you know, giving us your observation? What is your stand-up comedy sort of, uh, I guess? Yeah, my, 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 the method to, not the method to my madness, but just the method to madness in general, because <laughs> deciding to make stand-up comedy a skill that you're good at has to be one of the most insane things someone could do in their life there's zero chance to success. Like there's not going to be another Seinfeld, for instance, there's zero chance to massive success compared with other things you could be doing with your time. And there's a lot of frustration because sometimes you do well and, but you don't really know for sure. Like usually, you know, but sometimes you're like, did I do well? Did I do well? Were people laughing? What happened? And then sometimes you don't feel so good about how you did and you feel physically ill. So you're taking on an endeavor where thousands of times you're going to feel physically ill in the process. And it's really hard. You've got to perform, you know, between five and 10 times a week or more, which is, you know, now it's a little harder right now, but I'm trying to do it. I'm still trying to do at least five times a week or more. So to answer your question, I break down everything I watch and I study all the comedians just religiously. Like I watch every special I can I break down what's the difference between this guy and this guy. What are they doing with their voice? What are they doing with their body? What are they doing with their eyes? How are they acting out? What's their relationship to their comedy and absurdity? How do they structure a joke? What do they do when a joke goes off the rails and they're, they're kind of in the crowd? What are they doing on the stage? Like it's fascinating to watch Chris Rock as an example. Chris Rock, very written. His jokes are precisely word by word written. And why does he move like this cheetah back and forth on the stage? Well, the reason is, is because every time you blink, he's in a different spot. So you have to keep your eyes open and focus on him as much as you possibly can, or else you'll lose where he is. So everything, there's, everything he does has a reason. All these great comedians, everything they do has a reason. Also, Chris Rock, how does he build up material? He starts with nothing. He goes to the stress factory in New Brunswick at the beginning of the year, and he just reads... Uh, he just reads in a monotone off of a pad. And if any joke has any laughter at all, he knows, okay, this one, just the words alone, without any acting out, without any voice inflection, he can run with. And he starts building from there until he has a special in hand. So yeah, so every comedian out there from the most famous to the least famous, I, I tried to get my hands on their stuff. And, and analyze it and then feel what feels right for me. Or, or I play around writing in their voice or, or performing in their voice, not their jokes, but performing in their voice so I could practice the different styles. And I get very analytical. I remember, I didn't even think I was so analytical, but I remember I was having breakfast with one comedian and I was breaking down his comedy for him. Like I noticed this, 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 this. And he's like, whoa, I've never even looked at my comedy that way, but yeah, you got it exactly right. That's what I do. And he's like, have you always been so analytical? And that is how I... I, just a, one more thing on that. I kind of view every skill as not really the skill, but as a meta skill. So there's no such skill, for instance, as business. Nobody is good at business. 
what they're good, but they're, but they might be good at micro skills like sales, negotiation, marketing, execution, management, leadership, selling a company, which is different than sales, uh, uh, motivation, uh, coming up, being creative, coming up with ideas, uh, project management and follow through. All of these are different skills and there's, there's several more. And together, this business is the basket of those skills. Comedy, there's no such skill as comedy. There's having a sense of humor. There's likability. There's, there's writing. There's acting out. There's, there's stage work, crowd work, mic work, and on and on. So there's, there's, there's multiple skills that make up comedy. And I always try to uh, piece together for each comedian which skills they're using. So if you just see someone... If I go to a comedy show and I just see some, and I've been to thousands of comedy shows now, if I just see one, someone standing up and telling good jokes and the crowd's laughing, I could see they're a good writer, but maybe they're not doing the right amount of, you know, act outs or, or voices or, or crowd work. And not that they have to, but I'm always curious what would happen if they expanded these other skills, or maybe does this suggest they should just focus on the writing and do something else? Yeah. And James, translating stand-up comedy into a sitcom is a really hard thing to do, as we've seen a lot of people fail there. And it's funny you mentioned Chris Rock. Chris Rock was actually a finalist to be George. I, I still can't believe that. Our picture had a, I'm curious to see what your take on that is. But I did not know that. Yeah. How did, how did I not know that? <clears throat> yeah. You said you always want to learn something on a, on a, on a podcast. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, so, I mean, I, you, well, you must have read Seinfeldia or Seinfeldlandia. Like, I figure some of the fact like that would have been mentioned in one of these books about yeah. the show. Um, yeah, exactly. So back to the show, speaking of the characters, and since you like to get analytical, like, of the characters, who do you, who do you relate to the most? Like, who do you think that you, I don't, I don't want to say act like, but um, not most admire, but most relate to of, of the four, or if you want, a secondary character as well. It's interesting because I think we're all of those characters, but just in different contexts in our life. And I think that was part of the beauty of the show. Like think about Elaine and George for a second. We've all been in those situations at a job with a boss where we're feeling a little intimidated by the boss. And so we kiss up in various ways that aren't really authentic to who we really are. And that's what Elaine and George would do. And then usually something clumsy would happen along the way when you're not your authentic self and bad things would happen. Hilarity ensues, as they say. So in the, in the context of working at a job, I feel like Elaine or George and, and, or in the context sometimes of going to a party and doing something embarrassing, I feel like a George that happens a hundred percent of the time I go to parties. There's a, a George or Larry David like moment and, and relationships. There's a, there's a lot of stuff with all of them, but Kramer is probably the one least I relate to, except for the fact that I have, we all have weird interests at times. And Kramer is really great at having a sudden obscure interest and pursuing it as far as possible, as quickly as possible. So for instance, right now I am in the process of filing to run for president of the United States in 2024 with the federal election commission. Just breaking news. Breaking news. But, but just as like a, not as anything, like, I don't want to, I just want to understand the process of, of how to do it. I'm not really going to do anything with it as I tell my wife repeatedly, cause she's very against it. But, uh, you know, it seems like the sort of thing like a Kramer would do like Jerry, I, I just filed for president. I'm running for, I'm president Kramer. And it just seems like something he would just, and then the next show, you'll never hear about that again. Um, and then I think 
Jerry, I relate to when I'm with a group of my friends and I'm confident and I, I look down on something they did, but I'm, but I'm not afraid to point it out in a funny way. Like, you know, do you see what you just did? It's like almost reminds me of the Jason Bateman character in Arrested Development when he's, when he's hanging out with the David Cross character, if you're familiar with, with that show. Like mm -hmm. he's always pointing out, I think you should maybe record yourself talking and play it back occasionally. And it, it, these sort of like Seinfeld kind of things where he, he, he establishes a little status over friends in casual situations because he's able to notice unusual things that they're doing that they're not noticing. So he uses that, the character uses that to establish a little bit of status over them for the viewer. Sometimes they're not aware of it, but the viewer is aware of it. Yeah, it's funny. You, you, it's, I, the, the, uh, the Kramer comparison, I mean, you, you had that thing about writing down 10 ideas a day. That sounds like a Kramer type idea. You know, he's always coming up with ideas and things like that. Um, yeah. I, I did pick up on that. And then um, the... Uh, right, and coming up with the 10 ideas a day. Yeah. Every now and then, I'm um, going to come up with an idea that, okay, let's just take the next three steps on this that I could do today. And so suddenly I'm doing some weird thing today. Like there was, but there was like a, a six month period which just ended really in the past few days where I decided, you know what? This lockdown means we never have to wear suits again. And then one step further, you never even have to wear uncomfortable outerwear again. And what's the most comfortable clothes on the planet? Pajamas by definition, because you sleep in them. And so I only wore pajamas for six straight months including when thing, the, the lockdowns were uh, unrestricting and I was going to restaurants, I was going on planes, I performed comedy just wearing my pajamas because I figured maybe this will give me more ideas for a business where I sell outer, uh, pajamas that look like outerwear but are super comfortable. I just want to see what it's like. And so that was an, a Kramer-esque experiment I did. Kramer idea. experiments a lot more than, yeah, than the other a, characters. That is a great idea. Sconced in velvet, it sounds like. The uh, George... See, that's the thing. So how, how deep can you go on the show while we got you? And we are, this is what we, we analyze every single episode of the show in our first 20 episodes of our podcast. Uh, do you have like a favorite episode or favorite episodes or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, de definitely the, the sequence where, where they were making a show about nothing on the show about nothing. That, those were amazing. Those episodes maybe was the first TV that ever blew my mind. Like, this is like really smart and this is art versus just a, a situation about a, a, a comedy. <laughs> so I, I was really blown away by the meta aspect of when, when they were pitching their show about nothing. That, that, that was amazing. And then it's interesting later when you read about Seinfeld, how it really connected with real life and, and, and so on. What about you guys? What are your favorites? So that, so that was season four. Season four yeah, yeah. We, our, our top five, uh, Tony, want to pull them up, but... Uh, yeah, I got I would say that, like, I feel like, and we're fans. I, let me preface that before I go here, but we are also critical as well. So I think right. seasons two through five in my, in my mind are, you know, like Mount Rushmore, but seasons seven a little bit and eight, eight and nine, some of it could be unwatchable. Um, so I am critical of the decline of, of George and Elaine as characters. I feel like we feel like Jerry and Kramer remain consistent uh, throughout the whole run. So yeah, we have fun with the the bottom five as well versus our top five, but our top five are pretty consistent. 
Yeah, our top five is like the phone message where uh, where George has to switch the tape recorder message Brilliant. before she gets it. Um, <laughs> you know, the uh, the alternate side where uh, George is parking the cars and the Woody Allen movie's going on and a lot of stuff happens in that one. Um, the contest obviously is up there. The marine biologist is up there. Um, the marine like, biologist is yeah. one of mine. Yeah, I mean, it ends so well. I mean, that's the thing. That's what I, what I hired just said. I mean, two through five for us is is everything because – everything it's just so well written and the characters are, are, are who they are. And then they kind of, the characters take a turn in, in eight and nine where George just becomes yelling all the time. Elaine is a little bit more, you know, high in herself to lack of a better term. It just becomes not what the show was. It's almost two different shows. So some people like the other stuff better, the absurd, it gets really absurd towards the end. Um, yeah. You know, the beginning was more rooted in just them talking all the time. Like the Hamptons is a great episode. The Opposite's one of the best of all time, um, where George does the opposite, and uh, that's one. Yeah, of and then there's things. also the the uh, which season was uh, the Bizarro show? You know, where, they, where um, everybody where they, where Elaine met you know a Jerry George Kramer opposites. I I think that was season eight, which are critical. But that but I do give credit. That show is creative. So that yeah, show is creative. That is, I agree. That is one of the standouts from season eight. Season eight, yeah, season eight. So, so it's yeah. fair to say you guys are Larry David fans because Larry David oh, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, he he basically was the showrunner for the the seasons you like, and then yes. si- Jerry Seinfeld was more the showrunner for the later seasons, and and and. I mean, people give like David weird kinds of credit, like "Oh, Larry David was really the guy," and this and that. But people miss also the nuances of what Larry David did for the show. And and I'm curious what you think of this. I think what the biggest thing Larry David did for the show, among many, and there's a lot of things, the biggest thing he did for the show, and this was innovative in television, was he he didn't want any of the main characters to just be sitting around doing nothing and he didn't want them to feel bad. So he, he made sure in every single episode, every character had a, a main storyline, a main through line. And then, and that all the through lines would, all the storylines would hook up at the end. So this had never been done before on television with all the main characters. Like on, I love Lucy. Lucy has the main line. Sometimes Ricky has a main line. Rarely, you know, um, Vivian Vance or, or uh, Ethel and, and rarely Fred. So, so, if Larry David had written I Love Lucy, they all would have had main, you know, main through lines. Like we would have seen Fred having a problem at work, uh, Ethel having a problem hiding something from Lucy and on and on. And they would all meet up at the end. But Larry David's the first to to really do that. And I think as a leader, people don't think of him as a an, uh, a leader because they see his his character on Curb Your Enthusiasm. But I think he was the best leader as a showrunner. You hit the nail on the head. I'm, I'm just- I'm glad you knew that. I mean, that's something he said in interviews, I think. I'm sure you must have. That's maybe where you heard him say that. Or maybe you just watched the show and figured it out. But he definitely made a point to say he felt bad because the actors all wanted something. So he made sure to write them all like he just said exactly. Um, my, my biggest thing with him, and I think it's his line. He's used it. Jerry probably obviously had something to do with it. But really just the show in general is the no hugging rule and the no relationship humor rule. And, and so, you know, you sort of like the office and friends before as like, you know, popular shows with the, with the younger people. Now those are all simple. I mean, I just watched some episode of the office of the day and all of a sudden, boom, we're going to switch to these two, whatever their names are, the, the, the two that are always in love and they're going back and forth and they're always yeah. crying. That's, that never happens in Seinfeld. And that's why it's the best show. It's always just funny. There's no other stuff. They don't need to have, does Rachel and Rolls get together? They don't need that. 
They just go with the funny. And that's why, and he stuck to those guns of no hugging, you know, no crying, no relationship humor. It's just these four people and what the heck happens to them. And that's it. We're not going to fall into this trap of like, we're going to give a hook at the end of the season. Will they get together? Do they love each other? Uh, back yeah. and forth. It's like, that's, it's just, I don't know what, that's I, the big thing I take away with it. I agree. Like the, the, the no hugging role is great. And I used to think about this when, kind of the next wave of shows came out like Beverly Hills 90210 and Melrose Place, which are kind of the more, as I was getting older, the more soap opera-ish. They were, you know, Melrose Place was like starting to be my age. Like, oh, is this what my life's going to be like? And, you know, uh, and and there was always like a very special Thanksgiving episode for for both of them where like deep lessons would be, like a lot of hugging would happen and, right. and all the shows, just a minimal amount of hugging, you know, a regular amount of hugging would happen. But if you think about it, the no hugging role is sort of like stand-up comedy because often the comedian on stage is playing the persona of a flawed character. Like, you know, this happened to me in my relationship and it's kind of messed up and blah, blah, blah. Like then they say it and it's funny. And so it's this, you know, the, these flawed characters don't learn from their lessons. And I think you're right. That's a, that was a great insight of, of the show Seinfeld that it's more like real life this way. Um, with the no hugging. And then, you know, another thing Larry David did that I think is underappreciated is that every year he would basically, you know, it was very focused on initially on these New York, these crazy New York moments that Larry David had experienced. But there's only so many things you experience in life. So every year he would more or less fire almost all the writers and bring in a new slate of writers from New York to have their own New York experiences. So like I talked to Fred Stoller about this, uh, who was a writer on, yeah, yeah. on uh, uh, one season. And, you know, he did his season, he shared his New York experiences and then he was gone. And then there was the next set of writers. And some of those writers survived into Curb Your Enthusiasm, but it's, it's just, it's interesting. I think he is, he is interesting. Someone should write a book like The Leadership Techniques of, of Larry David. Like it's a good article or, or book. Yeah, and, and we even go we go deeper into actually who directs the episodes. And when Larry David was paired with Tom Chirones, that's when the real magic happened. And the not, writing not, not Larry Charles. Larry Charles, Charles was yeah. was more writer versus yeah director and mm -hmm. and producer. But Chirones was like the director who made that cohesion happen. And it's funny you just brought up the Mel Melrose Place. I always think about the, uh, if you remember the Melrose Place episode where Seinfeld has the lie detector test, if he watches Melrose or not, it's always a fun one as well. Oh, I don't remember that one. Was that in the later uh, seasons? Because uh, I probably say, did watch less of the later seasons. I'm going to say season six. Okay. Um, but it's, it's real funny. And, and to your point, they all get together at the end in Jerry's apartment and, and are watching Melrose Place. It's pretty funny. Uh, season um, six, you're right, Ohio, the beard. So it's funny. I uh, I know you're a chess master, and I found a, a Jerry quote: um, "Marriage is like a game of chess, except the board is flowing water, the pieces are made of smoke, and no move will have any effect on the outcome." And it's funny they chess plays a little part in Seinfeld. I'm just curious: Do you remember any of the chess scenes from Seinfeld? And do you have a favorite? Oh gosh, was there some scene? I'm trying to remember now. To to be honest, off the top of my head, I can't. But what? But something vague about maybe when George was and and um, his fiance's dad or something. But I, I, I'm just making it up. I don't know. There's you're, one yeah, scene you're where, yeah, go ahead, Ohio. 
Yeah, George was actually interviewing um, someone for Susan's scholarship, and he said he was the president of his chess club. And he asked them you know, who his favorite chess player is, and he just made up an answer. It was pretty funny. And then there's the famous uh, the penis versus the brain chess match. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So That's those good. are always uh, a little chess in the Seinfeld as well. So I thought you, you'd appreciate that. But by the way, that, that joke he made about chess, right? Obviously, it's, it's brilliant, and, it's, and the metaphor is apt and... But that's also a real great skill of his and a great skill of most comedians, which is to take two things that have nothing to do with each other and connect the dots in some in some weird way, which is what what he just did there. And so, he, again, that's a sign of a good comedy writer is to is to take these completely unconnected things and and, uh, you know, find an absurd sort of fit between them. You mentioned you were talking to um, is a Fred Stoller, right? Uh, he wrote on the show. Is yeah. there any other uh, you could share with us, maybe any other people that either, because a lot of comedians were on the show, um, you know, even before they were big, let's say, or even after they got big, whether a writer or actor. And I know you're kind of in, not kind of, you are in the comedy world in New York City. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you crossed paths with a lot of these guys. Yeah. Um, and I mean, other, I, I, I had on. one that you just told. I didn't realize that about him. Yeah. And I, I had on, um, well, I've had on Carol Leifer, who's, who's right. um, was involved in both Seinfeld and Curb. Uh, and, uh, I've had on Jeff Green, who's Jeff or Jeff Garland, who's Jeff Green in, in Curb Your Enthusiasm and Susie Essman, who's, um, oh, Susie yeah. in Curb Your Enthusiasm, Fred Stoller. Uh, I've probably had on others on the show that I don't even really remember or know. Cause I mean, like you said, a lot of people have been on the show, right? right. Uh, like it's, it's sort of funny, but I mean, I, I, I was actually really interested in Curb Your Enthusiasm, and I think that's why I know the Larry David stuff is is because that to me is like the one of the most brilliant sitcoms ever. You put that you you rank Curb over Seinfeld. It's hard to say. Like, do you do you count you know Roger Federer as a better tennis player than Arthur Ashe? Certainly, if they were playing today, you know, at, let's say they were both at their peaks today, then Roger Federer would destroy Arthur Ashe. Cause it was a different game and it was a different approach to the game. So it's the same thing with television. Seinfeld couldn't do what Curb Your Enthusiasm does. Just like I Love Lucy couldn't do what Seinfeld did. So it's just a different game. I don't, I don't know. I personally enjoy Curb Your Enthusiasm better, just like Roger Federer would destroy Arthur Ashe right now. But that doesn't, you have to figure out how you're defining six, you know, what's better or not. Yeah, because we get asked that a lot uh, about Curb and, and Seinfeld, and I've thought about it. The thing that I think what Curb does, because Curb isn't scripted, right? There's no dialogue written. Right. So they're taking a huge risk, right? That's like probably the biggest risk you can take is just to start talking and hopefully something comes out that's funny and, you know, gets the story moving and, and gets a laugh. Whereas if you're writing it, Jerry and Larry sit there with the writers and they can write every word to make sure it gets a laugh. And they, and you know, the writing is so good. So like you said, compare the two is so hard because when curb is not better to me because it misses sometimes because it's not written. So the story's better. The premise is better uh, from a, let's say from a comedy standpoint, right? Uh, you know, the setup is better. The premise is better, but the punchline might not hit because you're relying on someone to ad lib the punchline. Right. 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 And, 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 you know, 
also Curb is in that golden age we were talking about earlier where there was arcs to every season. Like there was the season about doing Correct. a Seinfeld reunion, for instance. The whole season's about that and he's trying to get, you know, Cheryl back. But uh, so, but yeah, you're, it's almost like comparing apples and oranges. So it's hard to say. I'd say Seinfeld was more pure sitcom style uh, right. back back then. And for what it did, it was it was definitely the best. Curb has so many interesting, like it's interesting you say it was a huge risk to do what he did. What makes something great, what makes Larry David great is how he reduces the risk rather than the initial idea. I think with any great idea, the idea seems like a risk, but then the rest of the execution is on reducing the risk. So for instance, how do you reduce the risk for Kerr? Let's say you have this idea. I'm going to make a um, an outline and then everybody's going to improv. Well, how do you reduce the risk? Let's just hire improv specialists, people who came out of Second City or the Groundlings or, you know, Upright Citizens Brigade. Let's hire the best improv people in the world, throw them in these scenes, and we've reduced risk because we know that they're the best improv players in the world. So Seinfeld, a show with no hugging, the way they were able to reduce the risk of that, because that was innovative, was to have Larry David writing the scripts. So he had a funny way of not, you know, he'll he'll go, right, right, he has some classic jokes, like he'll get on stage and say, you know, what's the deal with Hitler and magicians. And it's like such an absurd thing that it's very easy to take personally, you know, if you're, if you're the type of person to get triggered like that. And yet, you know, he was good at kind of immersing himself in those situations and then digging out of them. That was his, that's how he reduced the risk of no hugging is that he knew how to dig himself out of these awkward, weird situations. How do you reduce the risk where you're going to give every character in Seinfeld a a storyline? Well, Elaine and Kramer and George and Jerry were all equally great comedic actors at the very least. So you didn't really have any risk throwing a storyline to one of them. Yeah. Listen, those two shows will always be compared, but I think those, to your point, those four were incredible actors and Larry David is, it's Larry David. And then there's a bunch of secondary characters, right? And the secondary characters are incredible in Seinfeld too, right? The Costanzas, uh, Bookman. I'm just curious are there any favorite secondary characters? I mean, that's what we love about the show. It's kind of those, whether it's a Newman, you know, the Costanzas. Um, yeah, Lloyd you know, you, you make a great point that we remember the secondary characters almost in this mythological way, like the soup Nazi or Newman, you know, you know, Newman, you know, Jerry, like, you, you know, you remember these things about them that I don't remember – I, there's one secondary character in Friends, right? Is the guy who was the at worked at the cafe downstairs. But I can't remember any, any specific thing about him. And even the secondary characters in the office, like the future bosses, even though they were like James Spader and other you know well known people, you don't really remember that much about them. Whereas the, the secondary characters in Seinfeld are, are almost mythological, even more so than in Curb, like. You know the 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 sexy lady who works at the laundromat. It's a famous actress. I forget her name now. Um, I remember her, but there was nothing specific. She doesn't stand out like Newman in the Soup Nazi or or the guy in the restaurant that Jerry's trying to help. I forget his name, but it's it's very uh, Babu. Babu. Yeah, yeah, Babu. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just thinking about it, it makes you laugh. But uh, uh, I don't know if I had a favorite though. Uh, you know, and then there's the guy, the other comedian, the bad comedian, Gold, Jerry Gold. Uh, I don't, yeah, yeah, nothing, nobody, nobody stands out as my favorite, though. 
You know who who's actually a character in this in Seinfeld? We kind of touched on this. Is New York City itself, right? So you know, so many things happen in, 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 that are based on on New York City. I mean, even you know, my favorite episode, you know, the ultimate side is just you know Woody Allen shoot a movie there. They got to move the car and alter the side of the parking. The other one, the parking space where George and, and the guy are, are going to the same spot, and everyone outside on the street gets into it. Oh, he's right. He's right that that would happen in New York City, right? So New York City is a character. Um, you know, we got to kind of bring it up a little bit, the whole, the whole article and everything. I mean, do you, Jerry, I mean, even in the first couple of seasons of Seinfeld, the city was in bad shape and it was, you know, robbery, the subway episode. Um, Jerry has a, has a, has a joke from the seventies in his book. And then he did about the, you know, going to the South Bronx and you scream at the flat part of the, uh, the roller coaster. So he knows the city can be bad. Right. And, and so, you know, the comeback that it's going to make, and I, I agree with, with him, there will be a comeback, but I also agree with you that what that comeback looks like is what no one's really talking about. Um, so I'm just curious, like what the comeback looks like to you in the in your world of you know owning the comedy club and dealing with comics and live performances and shooting television shows in the city. Like what what is the comeback going to look like? Because it will come back, but it's not going to come back the way it was, right? It's going to be different. So what is that? You know, how do you foresee it in some way, maybe? Well, guys, I've just run out of time, so this is great. <laughs> <laughs> I just, yeah, you can skip that if you want. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a good question because this was the problem I had writing that article, which is that, you know, by the way, I was in New York the entire time, the whole pan- lockdown, everything. Um, you know, the protests, I mean, the protests are still ongoing, but the, at least the initial part of that. And I'm an optimistic guy. I've always, I think one of the things that disturbed a lot of my friends about my article and which kind of set the initial spread of the article was that this is almost the first time I'd written something like this without seeing a light at the end of the tunnel, without being optimistic somehow and giving hope. But I was looking at all these things. Like every day I'd take a walk in another store that just wasn't, that wasn't boarded up anymore. It was for lease, another restaurant, another store, or, uh, you know, just, I was trying to just pick up things here and there that, that seemed re- not just mildly off, but very off, where even if the lockdown had stopped right then, what does the future look like one year, two years, five years out? And then I would talk to people like city officials or you know, uh, congressmen or even federal administration officials. I, thought, I talked to so many people and I'm like, well, what do you what do you think of this? And then I would give them, like, I just, all these pizza restaurants are out of business on my block, for instance. And they said, well, less competition then. So restaurant owners are going to want to come in. And I'm like, you know, that's not how the restaurant business works. Like, right. like who is going to wake up today and say, finally, my dream of starting a pizza restaurant in New York, I could do it today because every other pizza restaurant just went out of business. Like no one, business people don't think like that. And, and the great thing about, I'm just, I'm diving for a second into the restaurant industry, but the great thing about the restaurant industry is that you want competition. There, there's, there are streets like Restaurant Row, 47th Street in, or 48th Street on the West Side that is all restaurants because you want to go to a restaurant area and then you pick which restaurant you're going to go to. That's how consumers behave. So if you're just, if there's no competition, your people won't go out anymore. They don't know what, they won't know where to go. And I don't think Jerry understands the bridge and tunnel and the efficiencies companies are having from remote, which you touch on. So that's yeah, another well, Right. And so then, 
you know, so so I started seeing all these things. Like all, all the office buildings were not, even though they were open suddenly at the end of the lockdowns, people had moved. People were moving to Phoenix. They were moving to Miami. They were moving to Denver. They were moving to Austin, like moving. Like they were buying places in other places. And and I said, why are you moving? What, what happens when this is over? Oh, my company told me to move. We're not, they're never coming back to the office. And so I'm like, okay, well, why is this happening? And I remember talking to uh, one of my editors for, for something I'm working on. And she was like, nobody, nobody needs to go back to the office. We're, get, we're more productive doing this remote. It's a lot more fun. I'm spending time with my kids. I'm in the outdoors and I see my friends here whenever I want. And uh, I'm more productive. And so then I started looking at the statistics. Well, there's a lot of research even before this pandemic and during this pandemic about how much more productive people are when they work remote and how much money is being saved by big companies when they're remote. And, uh, uh, you know, and so Seinfeld in his article, I'll mention one thing he said, he, he specifically says everybody hate. So he's talking about remote when he says this, everybody hates this, everybody period hates this. And he's referring to remote work. It's just not true. No, every single study ever done. I, I looked at, not true. Stanford, Harvard, IBM did a study. Other companies did studies. A hundred percent of the studies showed that anywhere from 60 to 90% of people love working remote. Like every studies of 20,000 people, more than significantly more than half love working remote. Okay. Well, productivity, don't you have to be in the office to be productive? No study after study. You're more productive, uh, working remote, not in every business, but in a lot of, on average, this one study I'm thinking of done at Harvard or whatever, 2,500 random workers, uh, some remote, some not more productive. U S patent office did a study. Pat, some patent examiners worked in the office. Some worked at home. The ones working at home, something like 13% more effective on and on and on. And so people like working remote. They're more productive working remote companies, uh, reduce, can reduce costs significantly. I mean, Manhattan rent's expensive, so you reduce extensive costs. And then there's this other unknown new factor, which is that uh, they don't want somebody coming into work and getting coronavirus and suing them. So liability is an unknown issue, even as we're speaking. Nobody knows what the story is on the legal ramifications of non-remote work. And on top of that now, Remote work is possible. It wasn't possible in the 70s. It wasn't possible in 2001. It wasn't possible in 2008. Remote bandwidth is 10 times faster than it was in 2008, 2009. So remote work for the first time is actually possible. It never was possible before. Then he's talking about grit. I was there in the 70s. I was in the World Trade Center. Everybody who's trashed me in the past two and a half months, I was in the World Trade Center on 9-11. So fuck you. I lived right there. I rebuilt downtown or was involved in it. I lived on Wall Street in 2008. So I saw it. Like, I've seen all the things everybody's referring to. And it was painful. I went broke during these periods. It was, it was sucked. And this is different right now. It's just different. I'm not like, you know, uh, and I haven't been abandoning ships since I wrote the article. I've talked to different borough presidents who are running for mayor. I've talked to the federal reserve people about is are do they ever bail out cities? Like, I just wanted to figure out the range of solutions. So all of this is to say, <laughs> I appreciate Seinfeld's love for the city. I even wrote in a later article, we're on the same side. I love yep. the city as well. I say that in the article, I don't want it to be dead. Uh, 
you know, but I think this is not an expert. Nobody's an expert at this, but, but this was Seinfeld's first opinion piece in his life. Like he had never <laughs> organized his thoughts in a way that expresses an opinion. And you could tell because the only thing he really does is, uh, an ad, you know, what's called an ad hominem attack. He, rather than answer the issues, he just insults me. And he's like, oh, this guy can't, he's going to miss his Broadway shows. No, you, I hate Broadway. I have, I will never, ever go to another Broadway show. I went to the Lion King to take my stupid kids to it and I'm never going to go again. But what happens when Broadway is shut down till mid next year, a thousand restaurants close, a hundred hotels close, another 200,000 people will go unemployed. Another bunch of union members who are stagehands and so on and work in the Broadway ecosystem are out of work you know, in, investors lose their money and then aren't encouraged to invest in future productions. Tourism goes down, which means billions in sales taxes away from New York. New York City has to have a way to pay for teachers, garbage collectors, uh, uh, EMT workers, healthcare workers, police, transit workers. New York City has to generate money from someplace. And if all, if the top wealthy people leave, which a thousand people a week now are leaving, and if all, if, if 80,000 restaurants and stores go out of business and tourism drops by half, how are you going to have the money to pay for these things, which then continues the cycle of, okay, New York City's less habitable and less, fewer businesses move there and on and on and on. It becomes this death cycle. So uh, I don't know. I, I, that's why I didn't necessarily have solutions. I just wanted to, I felt everybody was in denial, which turned out I was correct in a very painful way. You, you, you know, People like Jerry were saying, hey, grit, you know, New York always survives. Everybody should have grit. Well, grit doesn't fill a $100 billion hole. That's the problem. Yeah. And then people say, well, in 10 years, it'll come back. 10 years is a really long time to the garbage collector who just got fired yesterday. Like 10 years, what? who's, who's predicting 10 years from now? How can you predict 10 years on anything? So uh, no one has a solution. Everyone just says, oh, it's going to magically come back maybe in 10 years which is like in this impossible far off future, like in 2010, would you have expected this pandemic 10 years later? No one could predict 10 years from now. Well said. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I hope James. it comes back. I hope that, you know, you know, maybe shit hits the fan and everyone says, oh, rents will go down and there'll be this 70s style utopia again. A, it wasn't a utopia in the 70s. <laughs> exactly. I was repeatedly mugged in the 70s and, exactly. and it was not pleasant. And uh, as a kid, I was mugged. And uh, uh, I don't know how, if rents go down enough, you know, you tell, hey, if you, I, I called someone the other day and I'm like, oh man, a, a one bedroom apartment just went from 3000 to like 1900 in the village. And my friend was like, 1900, are you kidding me? I'm paying 800 for a three bedroom in Phoenix. Why would I do that? So, <laughs> you know, so this, this there's a disconnect between New Yorkers and reality right now, in, including me. That's why I wanted to write the article to see if people were aware of what was happening. Need a plan B. Exactly. James, we can't this thank you enough for the time. Thank you guys. I'll, I'll this tweet this out and everything. Thank yeah. you so much. Good luck on your presidential run. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> hey, when, when, um, uh, when this comes out, well, can I put it on my podcast and I'll promote your podcast? I'll say everybody. Uh, yes. to of course. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> All right, that'd be great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate right. it, James. Thanks, you guys. Thanks. Yeah, Cheers, you later. Bye. Right.
sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.